welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is really brave. He's 26 and he's going to share his story as a sexual assault survivor, um, going through a Title IX experience, um, working through pornography, having difficult relationship with family members at times, becoming very suicidal, um, serving a mission in the middle of all that, successful mission. Um, uh, he's gay. He's going to share his story about marrying a man and why that didn't work. Um, he's, I've, in sharing this experience, we both felt it'd be fine for him to use an anonymous name. Um, the name we're going to use is David, and I will call him David throughout the podcast. And that's just because the sensitive nature of his story and his desire to share the story, his story to be able to help others that are walking through complicated roads that may need to hear the things that David's learned, um, on his journey to be able to help others. Um, so this is a story I've born out of love, not um, vindictiveness for the people that have created harm in his life. It's more of a desire to help other people walking hard roads. Is that okay for an introduction, David? It is. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we said a prayer, and that's our prayers. This will just be helpful for you. So I'll turn it over to you, David. To I didn't get very detailed listeners on where he served his mission, where he's gone to college. He's got a couple degrees. Um, his age, I may have mentioned that. I can't remember if I did, but I'll just let David um, share his story. All right. Thank you so much. And as you said, I just want to make clear to the listeners and anyone who could be helped by this, that this really not sharing details like my name and some other specifics is not because I'm ashamed of where I've been or things I've experienced. It's just, as I was thinking, the best way to share what details, things that could most impact other people who are going through any part of the story that I've lived myself. It's just focus on the solutions. And this is really, again, guidance for individuals, parents, families, friends, leaders, whomever may encounter someone who has heard or been through something similar to myself. So again, thank you for this space. Um, starting out, go back to my childhood here. So I grew up in the church, had a few siblings. Um, as a kid, I was that kid who really, really didn't like going to church. I think just my personality being very energetic and the Sunday school kid who you see and you go, wow, that kid is, that kid is crazy. I didn't want to attend my classes. I was so uh, described as maybe a little bit of a hellion, but <laughs> grown out of it hopefully now, but I, for example, wouldn't even wear a tie or pass the sacrament. I just resisted so hard these things that my parents wanted me to do. And um, it's again, just a funny a detail, just kind of where I came from. Um, the story of my sexuality and realizing that I was gay, I was in second grade. I could take you back exactly where I was sitting in the specific chair in the specific room where we were having a conversation, I believe just with the health teacher in our elementary schools, we had age appropriate sex education and just a kid next to me said, Hey, did you know that if you looked up, you know, people kissing or something similar that you can find pictures of that. And I said, what, that, what, you know, me being seven years old, I had no idea obviously what any of that was. And so, yep, I looked it up and that's where the pornography ties came in. And I realized that I was attracted to the men on the screen more than the women. Um, and we, we progressed from there. And so that's about age again, seven, um, now I'm in, I'm 26 years old. So the pornography I've had in my life for 19 years. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that it's just crazy how much time, you know, has passed, but we later in childhood, unfortunately, I had my first experience with, in fact, a woman in my ward who she was a lifeguard at a local pool. I Grew up in a small town, so during the summer days, as many people know, what do you do? Go to the library, go outside, hang out with your friends, go to the pool. I would go there, and I didn't realize it at the time, but already feeling, I had the sense that what I was looking up was wrong. I didn't know why. Again, couldn't give you the, the reasoning as a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid, but 
I felt a lot of shame about that. And so this woman at that perfect moment, if you will, decided that she was going to groom me in a way. She would give me money and say, here's, a, here's some money for a snack. Here's, go get a drink, go get something that you like. And she had a few kids around my same age. So I didn't think anything of it. She just did what she was going to do. And, and it was never physical, I should say, but she would bring up topics like, oh, do you know that you can have sex if you're married, if you're a man or a woman, and just bring up those types of conversations. And I feel like that in a way fueled the pornography because I was curious as to what she was saying. I didn't, again, understand. I'd look it up and then I would see her and see her as she was the mother of one of my friends and just kind of this unfortunate cycle where eventually she was found out. I believe my parents, I, I said something off the cuff. They wouldn't expect a nine-year-old to say something so it formally knowledgeable about, you know, the physical body or sex. And eventually they pulled it out of me and she was found out. And I'm not exactly sure the details. She had a disciplinary council, whatever, but she was allowed to remain at church, unfortunately. And so every week after that, I feel like my parents and people in the ward just kind of said, go ahead. It's fine. You know, she's repented. And again, I don't know her details and I'm not trying to necessarily judge her on that, but bringing it back to me as a kid, not enjoying church as much. I also think that was an unfortunate experience. Every week I felt unsafe seeing her in that audience. Um, and so again, those are my founding days of church. And as we grew up and got into the puberty ages at school, also, I, distinctly remember realizing like in between classes or in gym in the locker room, you notice men. I didn't notice any of the women um, that started to become more uncomfortable. And so I pushed myself to get involved in things that were stereotypically not gay sports. I love doing things, you know, outdoorsy with my friends, trying to purposefully mask that side of me because I, again, didn't want to be found out. People for a second there might've I was never bullied severely, but they would say, you know, oh, that's so gay. I can't believe this is such a gay thing. Are you gay? You know, that type of teasing. And I just say, no, 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 not me. Went on dates with girls, homecoming, all types of the classic covers that, if you will, <laughs> for people going through that experience. Um, at the same time, the pornography was always there. I developed the habit of using pornography as a mask for all of those feelings. I'd say it was very severe. Even in high school, there were times where it was three, four, maybe even five times a day, which sounds crazy, but it was intensive. Also, the third part of the story besides church, school life, in my family home, I did not have a wonderful relationship with my parents. I think part of that story is me feeling shame about the pornography and going to church and having the expectations, this is what you should be doing and sexuality. And of course, everything is just swirling around. Um, at that point, I knew that something needed to change around the age of 17. So again, 10 years into pornography, I really was struggling internally where later in the story, we'll talk about some more severe depression and anxiety, but this is when it really started to appear just memories of on the weekends. If I didn't have something to do, just laying in bed or sitting around the house, feeling so lost and completely incapable of making that decision. Cause I just felt like such a loser thinking, how could I not stop this? Why would I have done this at such a young age? I've set myself up for failure. That type of negative self-talk just in a continuous loop. Um, and so we take to the summer of my before senior year, we're at a youth conference and in the youth conference, it was come on to Christ Jesus Christ, the center of your life. It was church history oriented. And so I was having a lot of really good experiences for the first time in maybe years, even at church, just feeling connected to my friends, connected to my church leaders, connected to everything that I had always wanted to be in this ideal and perfect 
you know, perfect LDS kid who just didn't have the issue of pornography and loved church. And I was always striving to feel that way. And this is the first miracle, if you will. There are going to be several that I note specifically. I um, was sitting in my youth conference and I'd said a prayer for the first time in maybe even ever, I'm not sure, but I was just saying, you know, Heavenly Father, what is going on in my life? I feel completely lost. I need help. Please help me. I want to get over the pornography issue. And I was sitting there eating breakfast. And in my mind, I heard the voice, a voice say, talk to your bishop now. Talk to him. He will help you. And I somehow found the strength. I stood up and I walked right over to my bishop. And I said, can I please talk to you outside? And I did. And I just said, I have been... Wow addicted to pornography for 10 years and I need your help. Please help me. And he said, okay, let's talk this Sunday. And you know, that's kind of, it was a good moment, but it led to <laughs> many of the other things we'll talk about here. So Richard, that's, that's part, that's part one. That's part of my story. Of three. <laughs> um, you're really brave. Um, on behalf of all of our listeners, just you're really brave. So thank you. And keep sharing. Thanks. Okay, so moving into maybe section two, ages 18 to, to 22 of, we, on that Sunday, we met up and I explained to him what had been going on and he was very sympathetic and was wonderful in that way. But he, I think this is standard practice. He said, well, you need to obviously tell your parents. And I said, well, I don't feel comfortable doing that because we already have a strained relationship and I'm not sure this is going to be a great, a great choice for me. I just don't have the good feeling that this is something that I should do. Again, I understand now that that's standard practice and maybe he didn't have the full extent of what I was experiencing, but he really encouraged me to do that. And so I took that risk that night. I came home and I told my parents that I had been struggling for 10 years with pornography and they both just looked at me and were in complete shock. Mom started crying. Dad instantly, something had shifted within him and he just got extremely angry with me. He said, how could you be doing this in our house? You're making your mom feel this way. That's so gross. At the same time, I should say, if anyone's heard of the show 19 Kids and Counting, uh, the Duggar family on TLC with their oldest son, uh, at the time had been exposed for... Um, Hurt, I'll say hurting children with pornography and those types of issues. And he actually said, well, you're going to end up just like that. And so is that what you want to be in this life? You want to be someone like that who does these horrible things and watches pornography? You know, again, why would you do that to yourself? And so that was a defining moment because I think looking back, I completely, in the most vulnerable moment of my life at, to that point, I just curled in and I kept it in. And I said, okay, this is it. I'm never going to talk about this again. That was a horrible experience. And that, that led me on the path <laughs> uh, for the next, you know, 10 years after that. I continued through the senior year and through that last year of high school, struggling with pornography. I was lying to my bishop and saying everything was fine. I didn't want to have that experience again. I didn't even tell him that I had had that experience with my parents. He thought everything was fine. And I was, I was fine acting like it was fine. So I just continued on to that point. And again, we graduated and moved into the college years. I lived in the rural Midwest. And so at that point I said, I need to get out of here and take a risk. And I did attend a church school for college and Again, one of, I feel like one of the miracles in my life, I wasn't thinking about it. I had that attitude of, oh, I don't want to attend a BYU, gross, who wants to attend a church school? And the day the application was due, I submitted it and I said, fine, if I get into this school, I'm going. And this is the only choice I have. And lo and behold, I got in. And so I moved the next month, thousands of miles away. I was really searching for a new beginning. <laughs> And boy, did I find it. I, I felt great 
throughout that time, I really felt like I was able to grow and be my own person, connect with people, really start over there. Of course, at the church schools, there are temples nearby. And I felt not even going into the temple at first because I was still using pornography and I wasn't feeling like I was worthy to go in even to the the guest sitting area. I couldn't get myself to do it, but I felt drawn to that spiritual center, that spiritual hub thing. The thing that I'd always wanted, you know, Jesus Christ in my life in a healthy way. I'd always wanted that guidance and I felt, felt the love, even if I didn't realize it. And so that was step-by-step day by day as the years went on. I slowly felt brave enough to talk to my wife, say, Bishop, completely different reaction to anybody else I'd spoken to before was completely understanding he had himself had experienced that type of issue with pornography in his earlier life. And so that was very helpful to me. I started attending church ARP, addiction recovery program meetings. I met friends through that and just really started to thrive in that area. The other part of college, I should say, was, again, being gay. I knew that. That's a, that was a main driver for a lot of the stress I was feeling. I wasn't exactly sure how to navigate that. Still, obviously, being attracted to men. Wondering, okay, should I go on dates with men? Should I not go on dates? What, what should I do? Pornography, kind of feeling that sex drive that everyone has. And so I just thought, okay, I'm going to go on a date. I'll go on another date. I'll go on another date. Eventually that went okay. And leading into this experience that I had, I'll preface for the listeners. I'm going to be talking about sexual assaults and difficult relationships. And so just be forewarned, I met this guy on campus and it was going pretty well. We went on a couple of dates and I felt after a couple of weeks that I wasn't interested anymore and just thought, okay, I'm good. And he had been pushing me to not just go on dates, but, you know, engage in sexual activity and try to go the other direction, not break up, but to be more of a serious thing. And I said that I didn't want to. And, and this one particular day he said, you are not going to leave me. You are going to date me. And that's the end of it. And I said, no, I'm not. That's, that's not going to happen. And I tried to leave and he grabbed me and threw me on the bed. And that's when this horrible chapter of life started. He assaulted me again, not any specific details, but after that, I felt completely broken. I can actually remember feeling like my mind and my body had separated during that experience. And I just went blank. I hear stories a lot. So people explain similar feelings and I hadn't understood what they meant, but I unfortunately do in that way. And so he, after that said, if you tell anyone, that's the last thing you'll ever do. I, you are going to do this when I want to do this. And I, in that mindset that I had, I said, okay, I guess I'm stuck. Again, I'm back to being stuck. Pornography is one thing I already feel guilty about dating and doing these things. And so I'm now in another chapter of this story. He also, just for some other details, I, he lived in my same building. My door to the apartment didn't always work. And so I was constantly living, meaning it didn't lock all the way. So you could sometimes just open it without even having a key. And so I'd see him everywhere. He knew friends of mine. He was always coming around just to see and make sure I wasn't going to tell anyone and threatening my safety and my life. And this went on for six, seven, eight months total. So it was a very long and dark time to be feeling like this. Um, also for the listeners, now we're going to be talking about some of my struggles with suicidal thoughts and an experience that I had. So again, if you need to skip this, I would suggest that. But that anxiety and depression that I had always thought was there, of course, just flourished and came out during this time, just similar to when I was in high school, hours, days in bed, just sitting there fearful thinking, is this, is he going to come to my apartment right now? Is this going to be a thing? Can I sleep tonight? There were days where I 
slept for one hour, two hours, three hours. Within a week, I might get 10 hours of sleep, just completely strained physically, losing weight rapidly. Um, I think I'm about six foot right now. And at, at the lowest, I had, I had gotten to the, about 120 pounds. Physically was destroying me. Um, and so I just, I started having these thoughts one day, like, you know, there's no point in trying to improve yourself. What is the purpose of this? Why are you struggling? Just make the easy choice. Take yourself out. Just end it all. Just come on. This is easy. Just make that choice. And that was what was constantly in my head in the loop for weeks. And one day I decided that I was going to do it. I, w- I made sure I was alone in my apartment. I I was waiting. I wrote a note. I had everything planned out and I just said, okay, this is it. I was in my room thinking about how to do it and I came very close to doing it. I was that one second away from the method I had chosen, but I had this thought in my head pop out of nowhere and it said, call this specific friend. Just call her have a conversation, see how it goes. And I hesitated. I called her and she was usually very busy and usually at work or doing something. And she said, I'm coming right now. And so she ran over, talked to me, talked me down from that instance. And I, nothing came of it at that time, meaning I didn't try to take my life again, but man, am I so grateful that she was able and willing to to help me in that time of my greatest need um and so lots of other thoughts here but to pause the story i should just say if you ever feel like you for whatever reason doesn't it's not it's not necessarily going to be something that extreme but if you ever have the thought i wonder how this person's doing my mom my sister my best friend just reach out it it can't hurt and there are times where you just don't know how big of an impact they'll have on someone's life. So please do that. That's my urging for any listeners who have those types of small impressions. <clears throat> A few weeks after that, I decided that I was going to, I had been praying a lot and really reading my scriptures and trying to trying to reconnect with Jesus Christ. If anything, this experience had made me, it's kind of wiped me out maybe to the foundation. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take a greater chance on reaching out to Jesus Christ. And I don't even know if he's listening, but I, I hope so. (laughs) All these years of being in the church and hearing this, I hope that he's listening. And I did that. I found over the course of, days and weeks, even though all these things were still swirling around, doing the simple things like praying and reading my scriptures, I found greater strength from that. And the day came in class where I think at the beginning of every semester, they had an introduction and they gave us, you know, the class rules, university rules, and they mentioned services that they had, including Title IX office, which if you don't know, at least at church schools, and I'm pretty sure most other universities, they have the Title IX or some type of student resource office available for you in case you are involved or know of someone who's involved with some issue, harassment, assaults, any, I'm sure, issues among students and teachers or something on campus. And so I said, I'm going to do this right now. I walked over, I filed a report, and it was like night and day. I hear stories of people who... I've had unfortunate experiences, you know, with honor code office or title nine, but for whatever reason, this woman who helped me believed me, she wanted me to succeed and reassured me that she was on my side and she, she's an angel. And so I appreciate you greatly. If you ever happen to to listen to this, thank you so much for helping me. Um, she moved me out of my apartment that same day. She contacted housing and said, you are going to get this guy out of here today or else. And she just made everything happen. Um, and for her, I'm again, very grateful. And at this point is when I started to feel like things were looking up for me. Um, in the back of my mind, I'd always considered 
going on a mission. I already felt unusual that I had chosen not to go on my mission at an earlier age. I mean, I think for obvious reasons, but people around me didn't know that. And so they were going at 18, 19, and I was in my early 20s at this point. I was almost done with my degree and I had considered what to do if I should or shouldn't do it. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to take a risk and just apply. Just send your mission papers out. Just just do it. I'm, I, I've always thought this was an interesting idea. And it was, I got all my papers done in one weekend, made all the appointments and did it all and submitted it. And six days later, I had my call for the mission that I was supposed to leave for in eight weeks. It was, it was a whirlwind. <laughs> and I believe that that, again, was not a coincidence. And that was the exact moment I needed to go. And off I went. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a very intense experience. <laughs> and so sparing details, again, I served in the South Pacific. I spoke an Asian-based language. It was very interesting to I was the kid who again my high school strangely did not require me to, you know, you have your standard Spanish and French languages. I didn't do that. They didn't require it, which I regret. <laughs> Because if you can imagine going to the MTC thinking, okay, this is crazy. I don't have any idea what this means. I remember seriously sitting there and going, wow, this just looks crazy. What is this? And everyone else was you know, learning 50 words a day and memorizing the whole textbook. And I could barely get one word out. One, barely one. If I even said it, I'd forget it the next minute. And so it was a struggle. I was there for nine weeks. I did appreciate the spiritual part. I think a lot of missionaries, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some said the opposite. You know, they love their class. They just want to get to the mission field and hurry, hurry, hurry. And I was just saying, after these many years of this much stress and dealing with that, it was such a relief to sit there and feel connected all day long and have nowhere to go, nowhere to be besides your few classes and with your good friends and our districts were very tight with each other. We really got along well, and it was a much-needed reset for me. A few interesting stories, even from that time, where, again, I, I see miracles and different forms popping up in my life. At the MTC, we, of course, had many hours of language classes, and as I mentioned, it was, in a way, stressful because I didn't feel like I was learning much, and really, it was just doubting my abilities more than I should have been. But that's a lot of people have that experience. I remember specifically where we'd be, you know, doing practice lessons. I'd be too afraid to say something, but in my mind, I would hear or think he's saying this and he will say this next, or this is what he's going to talk about. And then he would talk about it. And I'd say, wow, this is so interesting. I wonder why this, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for this, but this experience of honing in on the spirit and its promptings, um, would benefit me from that point on and still does to this day. Another experience standing in line waiting for food in the calf. And I had some uh, missionaries in my district practicing with each other. And someone said something in our language. The other one said, I wonder what that means. What does that mean in English? And in my mind, I heard that exact sentence in English. And I said, that's what that means. And he said, yeah, that's, this is what that means. And just those startling moments where I'd say, wow, why is this happening to me? <laughs> I appreciate it, Heavenly Father. Thank you for these small glimpses into your love for me and the love for the people around me. Um, it was wonderful. Eventually, of course, did make it to the mission fields. Our small branch that we had with this language, there were 12 missionaries at our peak. And so we, which is a ton, if you don't know. I think we had more missionaries than branch members at a certain point. I think at one week we had nine members and 12 missionaries. So it was funny to outnumber them, but it was great to have that intimate community of strong, faithful saints in this foreign lands language. They sometimes didn't even speak themselves to see that example of dedication really helped me. And I gained a lot of strength from them during those times. So, Richard, I think that's about it. Before we get into COVID and all of the fun after that, I think that's, <laughs> that's 
that's phase two for me. So that was a lot. It was a lot. And I wrote down some things I'd like to come back to. Um, sure. That was really brave. And But I, my impression is just keep you sharing your story and then we can talk about it. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. So we have, as I mentioned, the, uh, the fun times with COVID. I was on my mission in early 2020. And I remember thinking I would, you know, we'd be at the train station or talking to members. And I said, have you, you heard of this thing called COVID-19? And they said, what? I no, I, I don't watch the news. I'm a missionary. I have no idea what you're talking about. Just living in this bubble of happy, happy life, reading the Book of Mormon all day and talking to everyone we saw. That was wonderful. And for me, all of a sudden, we just had this call with our bishop and he said, we're all going home. The church has said everyone needs to evacuate tomorrow, pack everything and go. I said, wow, this is shocking. This is very intense situation, of course, and many people can relate to it. And I blinked, slept for a few hours, and all of a sudden I was back home in this environment where before going to college and moving away had been bad. <laughs> and so that complete turnaround, maybe that missionary glow lasted for a few days. I think it was good um, to try at least a few times to, you know, I tried to read my scriptures on my own and I tried to keep up those missionary standards, but it just did not last. It was, it was hard being at home with my parents and for everyone, not just for me, but it was difficult to be around with that lack of structure that I had leaned so heavily on in my mission. I did work with before my mission, I had worked with elderly in a kind of like an assisted living nursing home center. And so I went back to that job. And for that reason, it was helpful because I, of course, for money and those practical reasons, I found another purpose in my life for that year or so that I did that job. I felt really connected to them and they were all struggling as we were, but especially with no visitors, no children, sometimes not even your own spouse could see you for months at a time. and. I believe that was a saving grace for me just to make it through that difficult period. I, I, I purposefully had to put my own issues and needs away, even if for eight hours a day <laughs> and just do what they, they needed me to do, which is just be there and love them and take care of them. Um, it was a special, it was a special time. Fast forward a little bit in 2021. I, I was unsure of where to go and what to do next. We, you know, my family and I were talking about, okay, do you want to go to school again? Are you trying to work? What do you want to do? And I just wasn't sure. And I'd spent some good time praying about it. And eventually I decided I was, again, going to apply to another school, one school and see if it was going to work. And if I got in, I'm going, I'm just going to jump off and dive right in. So I got in and moved thousands of miles in the other direction. Again, I said, this is it. We're going to try this new chapter. <laughs> and that's when we get into my marriage. I, my first day in this new state, I stop along the freeway to go to a smoothie place and I'm in line behind the man who had become my future husband. So interesting, very Hallmark movie or something, but it was one of those experiences very quick, uh, dated for only a few weeks before we became official and then just kind of push, push, push. Looking back now, I think, well, I don't just think, I realize that you date and you are a couple at the, the level of your own health and your own well-being. So that's it. If I have a lesson for anyone who's dating, don't feel pressured to zoom along to the next phase because if it's meant to be, it'll happen. And it's, it's a natural process. Um, we married and pretty quickly after that, it became apparent that in a way... For people who are married for a long time, I think you know when someone's the one. And yes, there's always work to be done. And it's not just a given. You need to work at being married. But when we got married, I quickly realized that he was not the one. I just had that feeling. And eventually, I got to the point where I just cried and confessed. And I said, I 
I'm so sorry that we rushed into this. And he honestly felt the same way that I did, which was a relief, but still painful. And that was just earlier this year. And so it's not as if I'm completely fine over it and healed completely, but I am now divorced. We were married for about a year and that brings us to to present day, Richard. So (laughs) it's, it's been a wild, a wild ride in the last couple of years. So. Listeners, I, one of the things some guests step forward and their story's kind of done and it's time to share their story and other guests, parts of their story are done, but part of their, the rest of the story isn't done yet. And this is why I think your story is so powerful, David, is you've learned so much and you have so much to share, but it's not like you've got it all figured out and you know exactly, you know, the next 50 years of your life are going to work. Um, but I think the next 50 of your life, years of your life are going to be terrific because of what you've learned in this period of time. Um, you said some kind of, I've been using mic drop in the last few podcasts. Um, <laughs> Respect for being open about pornography use, and um, many guests talk about that, and you're some of my heroes to talk about that, because the shame around pornography to me is worse than pornography in the first place. I invite people not to view pornography, but the shame and the self-loathing and feeling God hurts them, and you use this term mask. It really was masking the realities of my life, and I've always felt pornography is not what's at the bottom of the iceberg. Um, it's sort of what's above the iceberg that we see in ourselves or we're helping others to solve, but really it's masking sure. um, or escaping or dealing with the bottom of the iceberg. Um, I loved your your word about your courage to talk to your bishop and his suggestion to talk to your parents and that vulnerability was not met with um, what you hoped and what parents might do a little bit better. And I thought that was a much better. I thought it was a good segment, but use this term. I curved it back in. And, um, I think that's helpful for all of us is when someone's vulnerable, even when they disappoint us, perhaps is maybe a parent is disappointed in learning the reality of our kids' lives that we don't shame our kids. What were you thinking? You know, how could you? And we sort of sometimes make it about us instead of the brave person opening up in these like God-given moments that if we're kind of prepared, how we're going to react can be really, really helpful. And I've even suggested parents to talk to our kids in advance about how we'll react. If you open up about not being straight, working through porn use, cheating on homework, (laughs) um, messing up with the word of wisdom. Um, We still invite our kids to follow church teachings, but we kind of could just say this is how we're going to respond um here's a question for you you honest about just being kind of i don't know if angry but you didn't really fit the mold in church behavior like wearing a tie and kind of you know and you're very clearly aware of your sexual orientation no one's actually on the podcast been able to people say i generally knew at the same age you're talking about but but David, no one said um, at age seven in the second grade sitting in this chair, I knew <laughs> that's that's 20 years ago. But I guess my question is, how much of this was because you weren't straight and just dealing with your sexuality as a seven-year-old, not knowing why and not knowing. And then you've got this experience with this woman and you're trying to figure this out on your own. And so how much of this kind of behavior do you think is your natural personality or sort of dealing with your sexual orientation? I think it was 90% at least if I had to give it a number of the sexual orientation and let's, you know, at the age of seven, maybe I again, wasn't able to put those words together. Like I am gay. I know exactly what this means, but having that way, way, way too early exposure to that sexual influences burned the fire within me, which again, came out in ways like anger, resisting the things at church, where even if I wasn't having conversations in primary about sexuality or something, I felt (laughs) like there was something wrong with me. And so I was in my seven-year-old way and all the way up through high school or whatever age it started to change. I 
just didn't have outlets to let it out. People around me weren't available emotionally. My bishop made me feel unsafe without trying to, again, not his fault, but just his standard, okay, do this now, do the checkbook, do the checklist of things that you need to do to deal with this issue versus more personal. How are you feeling about this? I was never asked that. I can't remember ever being asked, how are you doing with this? How are you feeling? Mm. But that lack of outlet just came out in destructive ways. It's a really helpful, thoughtful answer. Um, you know, so you're, you're brave about, I love your experience at youth conference and, you know, then your courage to just talk to your bishop right then. And, and that led to the experience we just talked about, but, um, then you go off to college and you date guys and you become, you know, a sexual victim and now survivor and you become really suicidal. And I'm glad you have a way of sort of warning listeners that a segment's coming up and but then being really honest with your story which helps others that are in the same moment i don't want to how much of this this because i don't believe it's like this but how much did you believe at the time that you being a victim of a sexual assault was god punishing you um, for porn use for being gay for dating men and this is really all your fault because i don't know if you thought that but some might and i want you to talk to your younger self and what you should have been thinking there. I don't want to be too leading this question or others that are in the middle of being a sexual assault victim and somehow um, their abuser or just their mind has said, this is all my fault. I deserve this. I believe that completely. I think being in the vulnerable spot that I was in already, just years of buildup of pent-in emotions and having, again, no felt like at least, which feelings oftentimes in these extreme situations that I've learned in therapy and other things, I've now been using to be healthier. Those things just completely mask reality for people. And so I, to your question, actually, thanks for bringing this up. There's just a lot to, we made a good outline and I want to share many things, but just to take a second, I, in the middle of this, I had tried talking to a bishop on campus about this, a different one as we moved between semesters and that made it a little difficult to keep some consistency. And he, in the buildup to those suicidal thoughts and eventually the action that I tried to take, he, I sat down with him and I, again, tried to be honest and vulnerable and just let him know exactly what was going on. And pure desperation. And he just looked at me and said, well, you know, I hear you, but you're a man and that doesn't happen to men. I just don't think that that can be completely true. You must've wanted to do something sexual. What part of the story isn't true? And he took it down that route. And so in slight pivot from your question, but those types of experiences made me think it was completely my fault, which for others, that is not, that's, that's the biggest lie. You, you're in control of your own thoughts and your own body, your own decisions. That is true. But if someone ever violates your space, tells you the opposite, touches you, does something against your will, that is not your fault. You are not accountable for that action. I thought you'd answer it that way. Listeners, I just get so emotional sometimes with the courage of somebody like David to step forth and share his story. And um, I, I wish I'd heard a story like this because I might have naturally blamed you if you had opened up to me because um, I never really thought about this space. And so for my natural reaction might be like that bishop. And now I recognize I would just add to your burden and your suicidal ideation and um, what you just taught, I believe, is what the church teaches. Believe people. Don't blame victims. Um, ask open-ended questions, how I can help. Um, I love that you connected with the title. I love a couple parts of your story that whoever this person you reached out to in the middle of um, your near-suicide attempt answered her phone or answered her text and came over. And yes, she did. 
and that you had the impression to do that. And you acted on that impression. You have this pattern, David, of acting on impressions. And um, I think that's one of the reasons you're alive. And then the Title I, nine office. Um, if I agree, if that woman's listening, um, or how many lives she's saved because of her training, her good heart. And that's the kind of training I wish that I had as a parent, as a local leader, more of that training, just what do I do when someone opens up about a sexual assault? What do I say and not say? And I just wish we had more training, um, in our church about that. It's on the church's website. And um, sometimes because of our church calling, we're required to kind of review that. But I wish it was just more broadly talked about. Any thoughts I on agree. that? I actually paused for a second. My computer just came unplugged, and then I will answer your question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My best answer to that question, I think, well, looking back at what I said earlier for some people think when you hear these stories that you're intimidated, you think, how do I help someone who is going through something like this? If, especially if you've never experienced it yourself, what do I say? What could I possibly say to help this person? And it really comes down to those basic things, just being there for someone, even if you have no idea what I felt or experienced and she didn't know all the details, but her answer of I'm here for you and I want you to know that I appreciate your friendship and I love you as a person, no matter what you've been through. I, both of my friends, the woman who was working in the title nine office who just put the shame in any questions of doubt or anything, because again, in her position too, I think it's even more remarkable where she is entitled to believe, or she's supposed to believe me, but she's also supposed to protect all students. And so she was honest and said, okay, I want to believe you. You're the one coming in. You're the one being proactive. And so I see from those small things that you're telling me, and I'm sure with other trainings, I am here to help you. I want you to be safe. Um, and that's probably what was also disappointing about that church experience where I think the opposite is true, where you want your Christ-like leader to hopefully, again, whether they have all the facts or not, I, I, I hope that you can put the judgment down and understand that you don't, you don't know what's going on in someone's minds or in their life. You really don't. Even if you're married or have kids, you, you just don't unless they let you in. And so if someone does let you in, Take a moment and appreciate it for what it's worth, because it could be, in my case, it was the difference between life and death. It really could be. You don't know. And then you serve a mission. Mm. Um, yes. Respect for your courage to do that. And it sounds like it was generally a positive experience, the Brotherhood of Missionaries, helping people. And then you're in the middle of COVID and... This is kind of a whole nother podcast, but here you are, you know, we're trying to visit elderly people both during COVID, your home from your mission, but you get a job kind of behind the closed doors. And yes, I just sort of think Christ, you know, your, his arms and hands are health care workers like you that were with our families when no one else was there. And, um, you know, that's not an easy space to be in, David. Um, and and respect for um, serving in that way, both with your mission, I'm wondering how you navigate that, um, COVID, and then working with elderly people. Um, and then going back to school. And then um, you talked about your marriage that didn't work out. I thought that was another really healthy, good segment. Um, listeners, I sometimes think this is the Dishaming podcast. We ought to rename it, actually. Um, <laughs> the de-shaming podcast, but you de-shame um, because you talk about it. You take it out of the darkness and bring it into light. And then it, it doesn't, then the shame can go away. Um, as you share your story with others and as others hear your story and they have the courage to recognize they're not alone, they're a good person and sharing their story is good. But then you, you have this kind of natural insight into who you are and, um, 
if I can say this correct, you know, you're only a couple at your own health and well-being is kind of the words you said. And I think what you're saying is I wasn't my personal best emotionally, spiritually. I was vulnerable. And so we both, I just wasn't my personal best to go into this committed marriage. And um, I, we both recognized that and it wasn't, it, you know, it ended. I don't, and I've always felt like, yeah, you know, I'm always invite someone to follow the church teachings, but I'll walk with you. And so if your road is just, I want to be in a same sex marriage, then I will just, I think you ought to take the same principles of dating as a straight marriage and be your personal best. And, and you might be more vulnerable if you're not, and you might be looking for validation. Um, Straight couples look for that, but you may just, I don't want to say you were looking for validation and that's why you got in this marriage. But I think um, it's just an insightful segment to be our personal best. Doesn't mean we need to be perfect. We grow together, but um, you're a couple at your own health and well-being sort of like help me sort of realize you can only be as good as, you know, your partner can't lift you. You've got to sort of be lifting each other. Any more thoughts on that? And anything I've said that you're not comfortable with, you're welcome to sort of clarify. Sure. I I actually agree with everything you said, but to give more detail, I, I can assure the listeners and anyone who has experienced this or will in the future, unfortunately, it's, I stand by what I said. I think you, you hear the, especially what I heard was, oh, you're half of a person and that's the other half and you need to feel it. Like I, I, having been married, you need to be able to sustain your own interests, your own health, your own well-being, because then you meet someone and hopefully you're lifting each other and not Yes, I know on the bad days when you're going through those tough times, sometimes you're not just doing 50-50, you're doing 95 and 5, but you need to be able to do your own 50 first. You have to be able to be in a spot where you can say, okay, I'm ready to be here for you. And I think looking back, I have really been trying not to judge myself, but I'm sure people can, again, being divorced for after a year of marriage, 10, 15, whatever it is, there's so much guilt. It's that dream of what you had. We had thought of a whole future. We're going to do this. We're going to go here. We're going to have this many kids, this type of house in the country with this many chickens, like anything specific that's part of that picture you want just comes crashing and is gone in a second. But it's, it's okay to make those types of mistakes because you are better than the person you were back then. You hopefully are learning something more than you knew at that age or when you first got married and people do change. And I'm grateful for this interaction. I also don't, I believe that this was supposed to happen. I had many experiences during the dating period where I had confirmations that this was the right place to be at the right time. And that, reason revealed itself more and has changed recently. I, and I, I mentioned that we both understand a lot of those issues that we were having and realized, okay, when someone, it feels good to feel good. And so when you find someone to love you and you get swept into it, you are excited and just go. And it's been an exercise for me to realize how to be, again, maybe take life step-by-step calmer approaches to things, this unwinding of my past several decades of these experiences that I've had. And so I'm grateful to have been married and see what's possible in the future because I do want to get married again. I, I'm not afraid of it, but I you know, might take it a little slower this time. <laughs> do you hope to marry a man or a woman? I hope to marry a man. I do. And listeners, um... You know, I'm not a therapist or marriage counselor, but in a few YSAs that were divorced as they um, were wondering about their future, even getting married again, I always felt like, um, just as David's inviting us to look at divorces, what did I learn? Not this big step back in your life, not this big black mark on your resume of life, but, you know, 
you were so positive as you talked about your divorce. Um, as a yeah, it's painful and you regret, but you also said this is part of I'm putting words in your mouth, but I I think it makes you a better person. And I think whoever you end up marrying will look at your divorce and said, you know, that that chapter of David has made David a better husband for me. And I look at that as a growth period of him that makes our marriage healthier. And I'm glad he went through that stage of life. And that's just me talking to anybody that's gone through a divorce. And um, I, I wrote this, this third book I wrote has a chapter on single Latter-day Saints. And I, I'm honest that I, you know, I got married at 28. And at that point, I dated a few divorced women. and. Um, I was sort of a rebuke of the spirit because their maturity. I didn't marry a divorced woman, but their sort of Christ-like attributes, their maturity, their perspective, their real approach to marriage was so refreshing. And um, I was disappointed that I had put a checklist on my list that I would never date or marry a divorced woman. So that's sort of an invitation to get past the checklist and look at the person. And um, the work they've done to become the person that they are. And, and I love your idea that I thought marriage was, it completes us. And I agree with that, but it's not like you've got, I love what you sort of said, David, that I'm a whole person and a complete person. Now um, marriage isn't going to make me a hundred. I love the, your approach to that. So um, more thought, I don't know if you want to talk any more about just your hopes for the future divorce or, just feeling sure. complete or anything I've said that you kind of want to clarify. Hopes for the future. I, I should say in these, I guess the section four, if you will, the future, what, what's coming next. I, some lessons I think are important to share is really, you have no idea what's coming next sometimes. And so you make plans and God laughs. I've heard that so many times and now I can relate to it directly and, I mean, really, if we think the last five years, all of us, could we have ever thought all of the crazy things that were (laughs) going to happen have happened? I don't think so. And so I do hope to remarry at some point. I'm not rushed or feeling rushed into it or, you know, not necessarily pursuing that. I am giving myself the time and the space for at least the rest of this year, if not longer, to notice things that I want to change and learn how to do it in a healthy way for myself so that I'm ready for that person whenever they happen to come into my life. I still, I'm studying for law school. I mean, I'm staying active and for the first time in my life, I'm feeling more grounded and well, I should say grounded in general. I feel like the first quarter of my life I hope the first quarter of my life has been up and down and a bit all over the place, but I have a love and a faith in Jesus Christ. And I should say, I, I do attend church, my job, luckily there it's again with elderly people and in that same type of environment currently. So they have church on Sundays and I sit in that and I enjoy the time with them. And it's been helpful for me. I'm not sure. I don't know what's going to happen in the long run. I should say that too. I think a lot of people who are gay or somewhere in the middle or having similar experiences wonder, you know, What's going to happen to me after this life? Am I going to be happy? Are we going to, is this going to work out? And so I, through therapy and connecting with the great friends and family members that I have, have in a way accepted not being able to know all those details. And that's made me feel better. And if I work day by day, I'm hoping that those answers will come. Yeah. And so we'll just have to see what happens next. <laughs> You're in a really good spot. I don't usually ask this question, but I think about it sometimes. Have you, have you ever asked God why you're gay? And have you ever received any answer on that? You know, I have not asked, asked him why. That's a, maybe I will. I will tonight. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually have not done that. I have my thoughts on that. I 
don't really know. Of course, no one really knows, but I don't have the feeling that I I was gay from the beginning of time and like before my earth life. I wonder if it's just a part of mortality. That's just my feeling on it. I don't know, but it helps me to process it when I think of it that way. And so we'll see if anything changes that over the course of my life. But another thing I hear and sometimes have trouble with is people say everything happens for a reason. And I do believe that some things, I mean, I know some things happen for a specific reason. I've just explained several of them. And I think there are pivotal things in your life that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ want to happen. And if you're willing to take the take that hint or accept their will, then they will happen for you. But I also think in the past, I've thought about it in terms of my sexuality and those issues with Am I worthy? Supposedly, you know, I, I equated being gay with without being worthy versus me as the person doing good things makes me a worthy person. I would sit around thinking, if this was, you know, meant to be, why would God make me gay if I I'm not supposed to be, or I'm supposed to be, you know, married in the temple to a woman? Like, why I would get lost in that rabbit hole of if this is supposed to be, then there must be a reason and there's something wrong with me. And so for now, again, I've, I've separated the two that I just accept that it's a part of my earthly life. And if I'm wrong, then I guess we'll all find out in the end and we'll deal with it then. But that's how I see that particular issue. A really thoughtful answer. Um, I, I've listened to lots of people answer that question. I don't ask it too often on the podcast, but I've just learned listeners to honor um, LGBTQ people and how they feel about that question and not sort of look for a set correlated answer that it's everybody. Everybody's going to have different feelings of that. And I've just, where I am is I just honor how people feel about that. Um, and it's very personal. And um, so I thought it was a really thoughtful answer. Um, you. you know, I'm just struck with how much work you've done on your own without traditional support systems that are available to straight LDS youth. Um, even if you were straight and working through pornography, there's less shame around that. You you know, you know, and you're just in this extra difficult. And I just, I'm, you know, you're 26, David, and you, um, where you've gotten yourself is just remarkable. And you've done so much of this on your own with God, with Jesus, with some people, with therapists, but it seems like you've done everything you can to sort of stay alive and navigate this road and bless others along the way and um, work towards another graduate degree. So respect. And you're not coming on the podcast with three quarters of your life done at 75 saying, okay, I've, um, I've kind of, you know, figured this out. I, and you're not saying I figured this out, but I think you're just in a great spot um, with just who you are and accepting who you are that makes the rest of your life possible. And um, I think your story helps others that are working through and maybe not opening up to anybody about the reality of their lives, but hearing your story says, I'm not walking alone. Um, so respect for being on the podcast. Talk to your, <laughs> sometimes I do this question, um, I don't know what row you're on in your second grade class, and you probably couldn't even handle the conversation <laughs> if you talked to your seven-year-old self, but just talk to your younger self, maybe whatever age you want to, and a really tough moment, and just give your younger self the hope that you could give your younger self now. If I could go back and talk to that kid who had no idea what was coming next with that silly question from a friend and you know what type of pandora's box that would open um, i would just i would try to reassure him that even at you know age 7 10 15 25 whatever it was that i'm stronger than i think i am you can handle hard things life is worth living have fun along the way don't be too hard on yourself. That's my general advice to anyone 
listening. I find those themes are constantly coming back up, especially in the last, you know, six months, year that I've been intensively trying to go through therapy and really dig out all of these issues now that I fully realize how fortunate I am to be where I am. Again, reason I wanted to share all these experiences with you and the listeners on the podcast is I just find life is more beautiful having been through these things. I appreciate every day that I'm able to wake up and have a healthy body that's mine and that I'm able to control and have goals in life and friends and family members who have been there through it all and love me throughout everything that I've shared. And I would trade it for nothing. I would not, I would not change any part of this story for anything. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I have found a lot of peace accepting that. Um, That was really powerful. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? For the listeners, again, I think just wherever you are in life, if you're in this tough spot listening to me, life is worth living. Please keep trying your best. I remember so many times thinking this is never going to get better. This is horrible. This is the worst thing. I cannot imagine anything improving. And I remember people telling me, this is something you can overcome. This is something that you can get through. This is something that you can work your way you can work your way through it no matter what, just don't give up. And I, even if 1% of me held on and tried to believe them, I'm so grateful that I did. I, I wouldn't be where I am without those people. So please love your friends, love your family, love everyone you you can, because tomorrow's not guaranteed. Make the most of your time that you have. Thank you, David, for being on the podcast. Thank you. Um, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. I'm grateful this platform exists, listeners. I think this was God's will that this platform exists and um, that brave people like David step forward and share their stories to help others. I'm grateful for all of you that listen and the people that share their stories. I love, I keep writing down things you say, David. I would not change anything in my story. And I think that's a really healthy place to be in. So this is um, David and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>